Welcome back to Deuteronomy class, which involves actually looking at the Gospel of Luke today. As we're going to consider how Jesus himself fulfilled the Shema, how Jesus fulfilled Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which is the section that we have just recently been going over in this class. And having that as a background, I think, will help you to grasp more of the significance of the temptation of Jesus because we've gone through the temptation of Israel and what happened with them and how God instructed them. But in Luke 4, you're going to see some parallels and some connections from the wilderness and what happened in the 40 years there to Jesus being in the wilderness and what happened in those 40 days rather than 40 years. Who, who can fulfill the Shema? Who can actually be the Deuteronomy 6 through 8 person? Who can love God with all their heart, soul, and might? Who can love God with absolutely everything in them and everything that comes out of them and everything that surrounds them? Who can perfectly obey God, fear God, serve God, and keep their oath to follow them with their whole life? And to do that without grumbling, to do that without ever becoming discontent, without ever breaking a promise to do something, without ever being given over to any idolatry or the enticements of the world whatsoever, without ever being apathetic toward God in anything, in any moment. Who can be tested on these things out of Deuteronomy 6 through 8 and get an A-plus on the exam? As we are going to be coming to Luke 4 and the temptation of Jesus, it's connecting very obviously into Israel being tested in the wilderness, but it also connects back to another guy who was tested but not in the wilderness. I'm speaking of Adam. He was tested in the garden, but he failed and represented all of humanity into death. But then the question became, well, if God's blessing is going to come to the whole world through the one nation of Israel, well, can they pass the test of being who they're supposed to be so that they can bring God's blessing to the ends of the earth? Well, what was the purpose of the Shema, or maybe more specifically Deuteronomy 8 within that for Israel. Well, it had a purpose for them. You read that in Deuteronomy 8, if you want to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we read something of the purpose of this section in Scripture. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 reads, The entire commandment that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. And here's the purpose. Why did he do this? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And he let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. We've talked many times about the purpose of the law, and you read something of that, I think, especially in verse 2. What does verse 2 remind us of God's purpose of the law in the life of Israel in the wilderness. What was the purpose of the law? What did you say, Vitaly? Yeah, it was to test them. I had some other answers there at the same time, so I didn't catch them all. What was the purpose of the law? Yeah, to help them to understand that we would need a savior. It was, a, it was a teaching tool. You know, we've talked about that, teacher, a tutor. It's, it, it points. The law is pointing, it's pointing out their sin. It's pointing them 
to a holy God and that the only one who can reconcile holy God and sinful man is somebody else. It's not them. It's uh, moving them forward to a savior. Uh, verse two, he says, these things happen that he might humble you, testing you. You know, it was teaching them something about themselves. It was teaching them what was in their heart when their heart was quizzed or examined. Uh, it, it showed what was actually in them. And what was lacking in them was trusting God ultimately, which he pointed out, and taking away things from them, things that were very normal to have, like food, you know, water. All of a sudden, they don't have that, and you, you find out within a few hours, they don't trust that God provides those sort of things. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, that was part of what, what, what they were being humbled by is you, you can't keep the law. They're being humbled and seeing the way that righteousness is fulfilled is not by your obedience. It's, by, it's showing them somebody needs to be obedient in your place. And so that's where you have that connection into to Adam. And Adam's a representative of all, all of humanity, but he represented them into death. But what it's showing them is not that you know, Israel becomes the representative themselves that Adam never could be, but they need a better representative than Adam themselves. But the question is, well, well, who is he? And they know certain things at this point, like he comes from the tribe of Judah, but he's called the, the scepter, so he's some sort of uh, king shepherd. Uh, they, they know that he's called the stone of Israel, and they're, they're looking for, well, they should be looking for who this guy is at this point, and the law is pointing them, it's pointing out their need for him to come, and it's teaching them to go to him when he comes, which is what's going to bring us in, in to Luke chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. It's like, now he's here, and he's doing all of the stuff that you couldn't, but he's doing it for you in your place. When, with this idea of being tested, we also have this concept of uh, temptation as well. So when, when does a testing become a temptation? Does God ever tempt anybody? Does God ever test anybody? Yeah, you see, he, he tested them, but he didn't tempt them. So when does a testing become a temptation? I read about this in James chapter 1 where it describes that, well, it, a test turns into a temptation when we're carried away by our own desires. You know, we're, we're tested, but then we have this wrong desire. It's not a desire to, to trust God, but it's for something else. It's a lust for something more or different than just having Jesus as your king. You want something more than that, something different than that. And so the temptation comes from within, but it also proves our actual character. It proves what our nature is. And you think about it like this. The reason that people are tempted to murder or be angry is because we're murderers at heart. You know, it, it tests us and it proves that inside of us, but it's an internal temptation. The reason that we're tempted to steal is because we're thieves at heart. Or the reason we're tempted to tell half-truths is because we're liars by nature. The reason that we're tempted to grumble about the lot that God has given us in life is because at our core we're, we're covetous. Uh, we don't trust Him. We, we have a better plan for our lives and it involves our comfort rather than trial and testing. Which brings us to look at ourselves. You know, what, what do we prove to, to be in the moment of testing and trial? Do we see that uh, we're tempted towards certain things? Does it show that there's something lacking in us that Jesus meets the need of for us? Now, when we come to the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4, if you want to turn with me there, Luke chapter 4. 
there's a lot at stake in the temptation of Jesus. So we already know Israel has failed at this and they need a representative who, who can be everything that they're supposed to be. You remember when Adam was, when his righteousness was tested in the garden, he failed. When Israel's righteousness was tested in the wilderness, they failed. Now Jesus is going to be tested in the wilderness and he's going to prove to be who he actually is. In Luke chapter 4, we see a, a battle between two kingdoms. This is the longest war continuing from Genesis 3.15 into Luke chapter 4. We see a battle between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. Uh, we see a, a movement from the first Adam to the last Adam. And Satan, as you remember, he tempted Adam in the best of circumstances, you know, in the Garden of Eden. You know, it, Adam wasn't lacking anything, uh, but in his failure, he represented the entire human race into the condemnation of all mankind. But in contrast, we have Jesus here being tempted in the wilderness and in weakness. You see, it's, it was the worst possible circumstances in some ways, yet he triumphs that he would accomplish the righteousness that his people lacked on their behalf. So I need to think about that as we read through this section of Luke 4 and we'll discuss it together. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray together as we continue our study here. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for your victory over Satan, over temptation. We thank you for your example and how you show us to battle against sin by the word of God, that doubt is cured by trusting in you. We pray that you would help us to see you in this text. We pray that you would help us to find ourselves glorying in you more, honoring you more, uh, more zealous in our obedience to you, more grateful for what you have accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for being everything that we need for our salvation, for our example, for our instruction for every need that we have as your creatures who have fallen from you, who have been restored to you, in you, to walk in you and to enjoy you forever. Teach us your truth and shepherd our hearts this morning. Amen. What's at stake at this point in scripture if Jesus fails? What happens if Jesus fails and this temptation in the wilderness. 
Yeah, everything. What are some specific things? What all falls apart at this point? Yeah, he can't, he can't save us. There's no salvation. Yeah, no salvation at all. Here Moses uh, prophesied of a, a greater prophet than him who would come. Can Jesus be that greater prophet if he just fails like Moses did? Yeah, so prophecy about that greater prophet. Uh, what about you know, prophecy about a, a, a priest who could uh, intercede for all of his people by being a, a blameless priest? He couldn't have that. What about everything that was represented in the Passover of uh, this spotless lamb sacrifice? Could Jesus be that if he failed at this point? What about this promised descendant of David who would be this king representative of his people? Could he be that, that forever king of a forever kingdom if he fails at this point? Uh, why couldn't he be a forever king if he fails at this point? Yeah. Because the wages of sin is death. Uh, he would have to die like David. And we would have to look forward for another. If Christ fails, as did all of Israel's past kings, then uh, he can't be the king who reigns on David's throne forever. Uh, it's not enough for him to fulfill prophecy about uh, prophet, priest, and king only to fail to now fail to fulfill the law. Uh, God didn't give this standard of obedient, perfect obedience to his law just to take it away later. Just to say, well, okay, you know, maybe we can just kind of grade on the curve or I recognize that you guys are too weak and so I'll lower the standard for you. Now, the, the standard is himself and he can't lower that standard because he would then uh, be degrading his own character. If the last Adam fails to overcome Satan's temptation where the first Adam failed, then there is therefore now no justification for those who are in Christ Jesus, which Luke is trying to get us to think about Adam and how he has written his text. If you just look right before Luke chapter 4, you read these words, the son of Adam, the son of genie, the, the son of God. So think about this genealogy here. You know, Luke wants you to focus on somebody in particular. He's, and he ends with where he wants you to focus. He says, the son of Adam. He says, remember that temptation and that failure? You know, the son of God. It's like, well, who, who, who were called son of God throughout scripture? Adam and Israel, remember we had talked about that last week, they were adopted as God's sons. So you have this connection from Adam to Israel to now Christ. But the anticipation is, well, what will happen with you know, this son of God? Will he prove to be the son of God and the rescuer of all adopted sons of God? I think what we see in this text is two important things. One is that Jesus is our victory in salvation. And the way that he's our victory is that he lives out the obedience that his people never could, but he takes that righteous obedience and he gives it to them as a gift, as their representative, so that they can have that on their account because he did it for them to give it to them as a gift. But also you see that he's giving his people an example of how to live by the word of God. He's given them an example of this is what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, your mind, and your strength. Which is why he's, his quotations are from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Uh, we're, we're seeing Jesus be the guy that Solomon prayed to be when Solomon dedicated the temple and he prayed that he would have a listening heart. He prayed that he would have a, 
a Shema heart. He prayed that he would be that Deuteronomy 6 kind of guy, but he failed to be that. But now we see Jesus is that. Uh, he, he is what Solomon wasn't and failed to be. Uh, he had a listening heart and could give others listening hearts. Now, as we look at these first four verses, you see Satan tempting the Son of God, telling him, you know, if you're the Son of God, then, you know, cause this stone to become bread. And Jesus quotes from this Shema section in Deuteronomy, and what does he say? Verse 4. What does Jesus say? Yeah, man shall not live by bread alone. So how did Jesus, well, first, what is the temptation exactly? Uh, overall, it's all a, it's a temptation to not trust God, but what is Satan specifically tempting Jesus to not trust? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. So yeah, verses one through four. It's about trusting God's provision. Can Jesus turn stones into bread? Yeah, he can. But there's also something in which he can only do his holy will. God, he can never disobey. He can never do anything that's unholy. And so there's a sense in which he could only do what was right because he is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 6 through 8. He's the fulfillment of trusting God even when he's been hungry for 40 days, even when he has the power to turn stones into bread. When you think about this for ourselves, how, how are we tempted to not trust in God's provision? What are some things that are God's provision in life? Yeah, job, work, money, food, shelter. What was that? Clothing, yes. Yeah, God has provided for us uh, money, health, certain relationships. And we can be tempted to, to not trust God when those things become difficult. difficult. And why, why does God do that? Why does he bring those difficulties? Yeah, one thing that it does is it, it, it humbles you and it tests you and it shows you you really don't trust him in these things. And you find that out about yourself when you take the test and you look at the grade you got on it and you're like, oh, no. Yeah, which has to, you know, deal with trusting in God's timing in things. Uh, what, are, what are some ways we can not trust God's timing? Marriage. Yeah, uh, you, you could be discontent in your singleness. Like, well, you know, God, I want, a, want a spouse. Why won't, why won't you give them to me now? And you think that he's not good in making you wait. That's a good one. I mean, some other things in which we, we don't trust God's timing and 
Perhaps we try to take things into our own hands. Yeah, jobs, children. I think uh, you could do this with a credit card. Or you think, I don't, I don't want to wait to save up to be able to get that. I think... Not waiting for the Black Friday sale. <laughs> yeah, now, now this is turning into a lesson on stewardship all of a sudden. <laughs> when God gives us these trials, we re, we're, we're to count them a joy. How is it that you can count it a joy when these hardships befall you? Yeah, you see God in it. It's this, this man shall not live by bread alone. You know, when you see that, so my, my life isn't about just always having the food I want when I want it. Uh, I can trust him even when I'm hungry. And that, that's more important than ha- having my, my daily bread. Uh, living by his word is more important than having three meals a day or even being able to have one in a day. Andrew. Yeah, and that's an important distinction between needs and wants because there are things that, you know, we want to have and we, we think that we need it. You know, may, maybe you have, all you have for dinner is corn, but you want sushi. You cannot afford the sushi. You cannot find it. You only have corn. So, yes, remember, you know, we, we live by trusting God's word even though we only have corn to eat. In James, you know, he talks about uh, we count trials as a blessing. So they're, they're used to, to, to bless us and, and to, to test us and to conform us to the image of Christ. You know, I also read about that sort of concept in uh, Romans chapter 8. You recognize God has a good purpose in everything to conform us to the image of Christ. And so when we're tested, we see we lack conformity to Christ in which you could become all self-righteous and your self-pity and be like well I'm just not good enough and that's why all this sort of stuff is happening to me or you can recognize you know I, I do fail but that's why I need Jesus and he is everything that I'm not and everything that I need uh, uh, he has obeyed God in my place and he's my my strength to be able to to obey him and he he hasn't abandoned me just because I've failed in this particular temptation. One of the sovereign purposes of God and trials that he reveals about Jesus as our high priest is that he can sympathize with us. You remember that in Hebrews chapter 4 it talks about uh, he was uh, a high priest who was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you see, there's something where he's like us, he's, he's tempted, but he's different than us, and that there's no sin in him. So when you read in James how, you know, a testing turns into temp- temptation, it's when we have these internal desires in which we're actually enticed by it. You know, the problem with us is we actually want to sin, uh, you, we, we have some sort of appetite for it. Jesus doesn't have that at all. Uh, he could only be tempted externally. You could never, he could never be tempted internally. And I was like, well, why is that? Because he, he had perfect desires. Uh, he had you know, the Deuteronomy 6-5 heart of loving God with absolutely everything that he is. which when I'm bringing out here is there's, there's a difference between temptation and desire where temptation can, it happens, you know, that's external, but desire is internal. 
that we praise God that Jesus can sympathize us while yet not being like us. But because he's not like us, he's able to redeem us from having sinful desires. And he's able to sympathize with us. You think Jesus' throne in Hebrews isn't uh, described as a, a throne of disappointment. It's like every time that you sin and fail, and it says he just shakes his head, maybe he scowls, maybe he gets a little torqued with you, you know, after you've done it for like the 30th time. What, what kind of throne does he sit on? Yeah, it's, it's a throne of grace. And there's something that's fearful about that while he's sitting on that throne of grace and you're invited to, to be around that. And there's something in which when you comprehend God's grace, you think, I don't belong here. Uh, like maybe seraphim and all their flaming glory can sing songs to him and praise him and be around him, but not me and my rags, yeah, not, not me and all of my failure toward the king. But, like, but why can you be there? Why can you be there at the king's throne of grace and not just have to always look at the floor and never be able to look up at him? Why can you be there? Yeah, because of what he did in, in Luke 4. Uh, because he's holy and blameless and our representative, guess what our position is in him? Holy and blameless. Uh, it takes faith to believe that. Because what you recognize about yourself is, I do things that are unholy and I'm to blame for everything that's wrong in my life. Uh, I can't shift that to anybody or anything else. But we see because Jesus is holy and blameless for us, he gives us that position and we're going to have that position in him in the resurrection. But right now there's that tension in which it's like we're not what we want to be, but why do we want to be that? Well, because he's given us a new desire to, to desire to be holy to him, to, to honor him for being the holy one in our place. He's our motivation and example of holiness. What about in God's provision? And you might know, think about moving from place to place. You know, you're in a different time of life. You know, we tend to think, well, the last place was better. Yeah, well, you know what? You complained about things when you lived in that better place too, didn't you? <laughs> you know, say, you might have changed where you live, but your heart has never really changed. That, like, there isn't a place that we, we could put your discontent heart where you would just always be thankful. Hey, how, how do you deal with those sort of moments? You think, you know, that place was better. That time in life was better. When things were more stable, that was better. Was it better? There was a wise preacher who once said, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Ecclesiastes 7.10. What are you believing about God in those moments when you're thinking that time was better? Yeah, it's, it's ungratefulness. What are you believing about God's character? Yeah, he would give you something less than good. Like, he was good back then, but not today. Uh, I'm getting the short end of it this time. And then you think it's, you know, maybe it's because he, he's punishing me because of something I did wrong. Is that true? Does God ever punish his own children? He disciplines them. Is there, are there sins that Christ didn't pay for on the cross that you just have to pay for sometimes yourself? No, there, there isn't any. But sometimes we're, we're tempted to believe that. 
My circumstances are such because of my sin. God's punishing me. He doesn't like me today. The reason this is happening, I didn't read enough chapters in the Bible this morning. Uh, it's because I, I got angry at so-and-so and, and I snapped. Now, there's certainly fruit of your consequences when you sin that affects you and others around you, but it doesn't change the character of God. We can't look back and say, well, the reason this has happened is because God isn't as good as he used to be. Somehow something has changed in how he's providing for me. Well, maybe the reason that we tend to be discontent or think that God is holding out on us is because our priorities are backwards. What I'm talking about here is our, our priority might be, well, I just want to be happy and comfortable. And who doesn't have those two things as priorities? I, I, think about what you did this morning. I, you get up, and the first person you thought about was you. Like, whose teeth did you brush first? Who did you get dressed first? <laughs> yeah, it, it was yourself. And I know it'd be weird to do that to somebody else first thing in the morning, but uh, <laughs> uh, we think we, we love ourselves a lot. Uh, we think about our happiness and comfort often. We're willing to, to sacrifice all sorts of things for ourselves, which is why we're taught in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself. Because the, the problem isn't that you need to start with loving you so you can love other people. The problem is you already love yourself a whole bunch. <laughs> so take that and put it on other people. Think about love that way. Sacrificing for the good of others and for their interest. What sort of priorities were different about Jesus in Luke chapter 4? Was his priorities happiness and comfort? Well, what do we see is that his priority here. Yeah, his priority is in worshiping God and serving him only. He's given us an example of and of what he was practicing here. And what he's practicing, he's going to preach you know, you read the same temptation narrative in Matthew chapter 4, and then what happens in Matthew chapter 5? Sermon on the Mount. So first he practices what he preaches, and then this is what he preaches. Seek first the kingdom of God. So first he did that. That's his priority. He didn't say, you know, seek first your safety and comfort. Seek first the kingdom of God. And these things, you know, unbelievers desire food and clothing. He, he'll provide that for you. When has, he, when has he ever not provided those things for his people? Look back at Adam. Look back at Israel. He's always provided for them what they needed, but it was to help them to see that number one priority it's God's kingdom, and it's trusting the word of the king in being a citizen of that kingdom. For Jesus, his, his food was to do the will of God. And it says that in John 4.34. You think about that. Why, why do you want food? Because you're hungry. And you, you want the hunger pains to go away. And you, you want energy. You want... Uh, strength and health. So what if the will of God was your food? Like, then you, you would hunger for righteousness. Uh, I have to know what he says and how he directs me and I need to be feeding on the spiritual milk of the word so I have nourishment and strength to walk in him. Which perhaps sanctifies our feelings of, of hunger it's not just a reminder that maybe we need to eat, but it's a reminder. I need the word of God. You know, as a Christian, in those moments, that hour before lunch when you just think, there's no way that I'm going to make it. 
And you have every time. You've made it every single time. See, this, I, need, I need the word of God. I need to, to trust God. So our priority is God's kingdom and righteousness. You know, it's living according to the example that Christ has given us. Uh, it's a reminder that obedience to God is more important even than our daily bread. It's more important than happiness, safety, comfort. And you can see this temptation of Jesus at this point. It, well, one, it was a legitimate sort of thing. He could turn stones into bread. And do you think, you know, if somebody else saw him do that, they would fault him for it? It's that, yeah, if I, I mean, if I could turn stones into bread, I would do that <laughs> in that situation. It's, it, it's seemingly innocent on its face, right? Uh, we can be tempted in the same way where to other people, it doesn't look like we did anything wrong on the outside. You know, it's something that's, I guess you could say neutral in a way, it could be like taking a, a car loan. It's okay to take a car loan. You're not necessarily sinning and doing that or breaking anything specific in God's word, but you could be taking that, that car loan out of a greedy heart. You could also be taking it out of a, a, a grateful heart that's trusting God and it's, just, it's actually a wise decision. It could also be an unwise decision because you're, you're getting something that's beyond your means. But on the outside, nobody else could know that except you. It's a seemingly innocent sort of thing, but even when you're making a decision like that, something as seemingly innocent as a car loan, are you trusting God in your heart in doing that particular thing? That's something that only you and the Spirit of God knows. Well, in Jesus' first temptation, he triumphed in trusting God's provision. This next section, verses 5 through 8, what was Satan tempting Jesus to not trust here? He's telling him he would give him you know, the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He would give him dominion and the glory of the kingdoms of the world that had been handed over to him. What was he tempting him to not trust? Yeah, it's a shortcut to avoid the crown. You can just skip the cross and go straight to the crown. I'll, I'll give you the kingdoms. You won't even have to suffer. This is about trusting God's plan. Was it already in God's plan for Jesus to rule over all the kingdoms of the earth? Yeah. Was, it, was the timing Luke chapter 4? No. The, this wasn't the timing, but it was going to happen. Therefore, Jesus could endure that suffering he could, he could take up his cross and follow God and endure that suffering because he, he knew how the long defeat would end. You can think about that in our, our own temptation. Like We're ultimately going to be victorious. Uh, the good work that God has began in you, he's going to finish it. Uh, his, his plan for everything in creation entering into his rest it isn't going to, to change based on you know, anything that you do. And you can't make it show up sooner. I think about this in the life of Eric Little. He was a Scottish fella who was really fast at running. He was a, an Olympian. And as a famous athlete... He could have much money and fame. He could, in a way, try to seek to, to not exactly follow God's plan. He had a desire to follow his father and being a, a missionary to China. But being a missionary to China meant being misunderstood. It meant being mocked. It meant suffering. It meant 
discomfort. It meant being separated from his family. Why pick that over fame and money? Why not just run on some Sundays? Remember, he was famous for that. He says, I'm not going to run on Sunday. Uh, that day is dedicated to, to honoring the Lord, and it's a non-negotiable. There's a book on the book spinner back there called For the Glory. Yeah, it's written by Duncan Hamilton, who, who isn't a believer. But you see what happened, what I think happened in that author's life. It's like, well, why, why write this biography on Eric Little? I think part of it is just the curiosity of what makes this guy tick? Like, why would he do that? Why would he make that sort of decision? You know, he wanted to figure this Eric Little guy out, which makes it a very interesting sort of read. Uh, I think there's this underlying question of, you know, why, why suffer when you can have great comfort and wealth? How would you answer that question? You know, why choose this? This isn't just suffering that just happens to you. This is like Jesus' suffering. He went into it. He saw other people suffering, and he went into their suffering. He chose to suffer. Why do we do that? Yeah, you know, why suffer in this life? I'm going to live again. You know, why spend and be spent for the cause of the gospel and, and give up going to, to see Hawaii? Well, I'm not going to miss out on seeing anything good in God's creation. You know, I, this, this isn't all that there, there is. You, know, you think about uh, uh, Randy Alcorn's uh, illustration, that, that heaven book. He talks about, you know, eternities like this line and then your life is this little dot on the line. He says, you know, are, are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? And, you know, what's the wise choice? You say, you know, obviously living for the dot is better. It's more significant than that long line. Foolishness, right? But you think, you know, why, why do uh, go to the Auburn Oaks care home? Why minister to those people? It's like, who, who knows if they even listen to you or hear anything from you? It's like, you know, you've, you're only like 10 minutes into talking and they're all asleep. They do actually hear things and remember. You know, talk to them later and it'll surprise you. Uh, you know, why, why enter into other people's hardship and suffering? It's like, we're going to live again. But it also has to deal with that, that priority. We're seeking his kingdom first. You know, not, not my kingdom first and the things that I want, but his kingdom first. And uh, that, that's not easy to do. Uh, well, one of the realities about self-denial is that it feels like self-denial. And we need to be reminded of that. And also directed like this is normal in the Christian life. To, to feel this sort of tension and to, to have to make hard choices. But those hard choices, as we know, are the most joyful things that we ever give ourselves to. Now, we might begin with a, a heart that'll hem and haw about just the smallest sort of opportunities to serve other people. But when we do it, I mean, how many times have you gotten over that hump? You went and you served somebody and you came back home and you just thought that was a waste of time. I should have just stayed home and watched the YouTubes. Nobody has ever said that. No Christian person has ever said that. As messed up as we can be sometimes, I don't think anybody's ever said that. <laughs> but you just come back and it's like, that, that was the best possible choice. That was awesome. You know, I, I, I got to be involved in the ministry of Christ in some small way to somebody else. You know, I got to be a, a conduit of the love of God to somebody else. I got to enjoy that because I got over myself. But that's the thing that we have to battle with because our hearts will 
be backwards towards what should be a, a right desire. You know, we're like Paul in Romans 6, or like, you know, oh, wretched man that I am. Like, I want to do this, but I don't want to do this. But I really want to do this. <laughs> like, who will get rid of this body of death so I don't have this tension anymore? Just as Christ as our example had to endure the cross before the crown, that's how it works for us. You can't just skip to the crown. Uh, we have to take up our cross and follow him. But when we do that, we join in the, the fellowship of the suffering servant. And that's perhaps the surprising thing that happens is that when you enter into suffering, you see Jesus was already there and involved in the thing all along. But now you get the blessing of being in that fellowship with others who have chosen to engage it. Now Luke 4, verses 9 through 13, there's another temptation in which Satan takes Jesus up to the, the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. But you see, Jesus keeps quoting these Bible verses out of Deuteronomy 6 to 8. So Satan's like, okay, so you want to obey some Bible verses. How about this one? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's like, jump off of this big thing out there toward those stones if you trust God's word so much, and let's see him fulfill this Bible passage. Now, one thing I want you to see here is that Satan uses Bible verses. He didn't change one word in it. Uh, he quoted it exactly. But do you think that Satan uses Bible verses the right way? No. What's wrong with how Satan is using the Bible verses, you think? Yeah, he's casting doubt rather than trust. It's a different uh, motivation, context, and, and meaning, yeah. So the, the three most important rules in Bible, in Bible interpretation are number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. Let's go read Psalm 91 in context. I'm going to read this psalm and you tell me what it's about ultimately. It says, He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings. He will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark. What do you think about this, this psalm is about so far? Is it about presuming on God to do things for you so you'll look really cool jumping off of tall buildings? What does it teach about, about God? What is he? Yeah, provider, refuge. You see that, that word trust comes up in there. My God in whom I trust. It's a psalm about trusting God. It's a, song, it's a psalm about his truth. It says, you know, his truth is a large shield and bulwark. It's like his truth will defend you. Verse 5 says, you will not be afraid of terror by night or arrows that fly by, of pestilence that moves in darkness or of destruction that devastates at noon, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made Yahweh my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you and no plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike 
your foot against a stone. That's where the devil stopped right there. So we know this is a psalm about trusting God, relying on his truth. And in that, why do you think the devil just stopped there and didn't read this next verse? You will tread upon the fierce lion and cobra. The, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. You think when you're reading that, if you know the psalm, you're seeing this, you see Jesus does that. He does verse 13. He says, well, why did, these, why did these things happen? Verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. So Luke 4 is about showing you God's salvation. It's like, how does it work? How does it happen? What does it look like? It looks like the son of God being everything that Adam was supposed to be but wasn't. It looks like the son of God being everything that Israel was supposed to be but wasn't. It looks like that for all the us saints to be called into the people of God and the future who weren't what they were supposed to be, but Jesus is that for us. And we look back and we trust in what he has done for us and what he is doing for us today. Many times we've come back to 1 Corinthians 10 as we've looked at the life of Israel and been reminded of the, the rock that they followed was Christ. The idea tied up in calling Christ the rock was that he, he was a, a stable protector that was always around them. How did he protect them when they didn't have water? He provided water, so he protects, he provides but he's also guiding them in the way that they should go. He's guiding them toward trusting God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that protector, provider, guider rock was Christ. That's who was leading them through the wilderness, which is a reminder still for us. He says this, this was instructive for them then. It's instructive for you now. A reminder that we have a rock who provides all that we need our spiritual needs, and our physical needs. I didn't write down the next one, trusting God's protection. That'll be bad because it, this all goes on the video, you know? All right, trusting God's protection. These are the three main ways that we're tempted so we need, to have, we need to be aware of that about ourselves, but also have a strategy that involves knowing what God's word says about these things. Ultimately, it boils down to just remembering you can trust him and he, he's working good in this. Now, in battling temptation, we read in Ephesians 6 about how we're to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Where's the word of God at in your life? Other times you think, well, I'm just, I'm too busy for it. I got this other stuff I got to do. And you think about this sort of battle analogy. You know, it's a, it's a sword. What, what if a soldier is too busy to take his sword into battle? How's it going to go for him? That's a, this is what we're getting from everybody. Can you think about that in, in your own life? If I'm, too, if I'm too busy to take up my sword, how's the spiritual battle going to go? Yeah, the, one of the things we had been talking about in, in TAG is, you know, what, it, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to, to be a man? You know, what, what shapes and makes a, a biblical woman or man the word of God. That's it. 
You see that in the example of Jesus. He, he trusted in the word of God. You know, he, he, he had his adventure club verses down. He was ready to do battle with them. So we need to follow that example. You know, you need to do your adventure club verses. Uh, you, need, you need to be in the word regularly like you're, you're regularly eating food and to figure out how, how you're going to do that. It can be reading, it can be memorizing, it can be listening to, to sermons, it can be talking about it with other people, thinking about it and how it applies. I, I, you're given this example just with food. I mean, every time you eat, you know, what do we do? We pray before a meal, give thanks to God. Why do we give thanks to him? He's faithful. You can trust him. It's a reminder that he's trustworthy. It's a reminder that he's protected you. He, he provides for you. He's still working out his plan and he's being faithful to it. Seems like a really mundane sort of thing, you know, eating and drinking or whatever you do. But in all those things we do, we do them to the glory of God. You gotta think about that. Why do you have stuff to clean up in your house? Because God has blessed you with so much stuff, there's junk actually to throw out. And you actually have a house. Why do you have stuff to clean it with? He's been so gracious, he's actually given you stuff to clean your house with and, and clothes to wear while you're doing it. Maybe he's put some other people in your house that can even help you with it. And so when you look at it, it's not, it's not this big burden that's surrounding you, but it's a gracious gift from God and a reminder that he's, provided for you and that he's trustworthy. Humanity has a long list of failures all the way from Adam through Israel. There's a long list of people who have failed to trust in God's provision and his plan and his protection. But Jesus wasn't one of those so that he could be our righteousness. You know, we don't find our righteousness in trying harder to obey him, but we find it in trusting that he is everything that God wants us to be in our place. And then that in turn is what motivates our obedience. You think about that in Romans 12, you know, b before it says to offer up your lives as a living sacrifice, it says you, you do that by what? It doesn't say you do it by gritting your teeth. That you do it by the mercies of God. You know, how do you live out Romans 12? Romans 1 through 11. That's all the motivation. It's the mercy uh, that God has shown towards sinners. That's what motivates it. Uh, his remembering nothing can separate us from the love of God motivates our obedience. Jesus triumphed as the perfect man in our place. His perfect life can be placed on our account by faith in his finished work and not our ability to finish the work ourselves. He's the high priest who's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make intercession for them. Even in all the filth and failure of our lives, he's able to wash away our sin and to make us pleasing to God. Uh, he'll never be abhorred by us because he has clothed us in his righteousness. He's the perfect sacrifice for imperfect sinners. He's the proven victorious king who could then preach in Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and could then confidently say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because Jesus was greatest amidst, because Jesus was victorious amidst the greatest of temptation, he could now preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The rest of the Bible could be written rather than just stopping right here. He came to seek and save the lost and he did it, and he did this that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed to all the nations as the gospel of Luke ends. Now, when we think about the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 through 8, 
Jesus's fulfilling of the Shaman, Luke 4, we see the superiority and supremacy of Christ. You know, we don't just see, we're not just reading a good story. Uh, this is somebody that we know. Uh, this is our Christ who is with us and whom we are walking with through life together. Which as we close here, I just want to, to read a, a section of, uh, it's called the Boys and Girls Catechism, which is the Baptist update on the Westminster Children's Catechism. And it's, it brings out the significance of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And I want you to hear these things as we close. What does Christ do for his people? He does the work of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Well, how is Christ a prophet? He teaches us the will of God, reveals God to us, and really was God in human flesh. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Because I am ignorant. How is Christ a priest? He died for our sins and prays to God for us. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Because I am guilty. How is Christ a king? He rules over us and defends us. Why do you need Christ as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. It's our greatest priority and joy to obediently follow this Jesus, who's the victory of our salvation, our example of how to overcome temptation and in him and to remember that for us who have so often failed to trust God and how he's provided for us, his plan, his protection, that we have a strong and perfect plea before the gracious throne of God. So let's pray and he'll be dismissed. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you are indeed a God of grace, that you're with us, that you never shake your head or scowl at us, that you're not merely a, a military sergeant with a to-do list that uh, is disappointed when we fail to, to do everything on that list, but rather you are the God of grace who sympathizes with us in our failures, who is our victory, who is our example, who is our instructor, that you are gentle toward us, you are patient with your disciples, you are long-suffering with us. Because you are sympathetic toward us, we have great hope. And because you are compassionate toward us and you have brought us into the family of the faithful, we walk not against temptation alone, but we have one another to be bolstered by, to stand in you as our refuge together, to help remind one another to be in pursuit of the good deeds that are seeking to prioritize your kingdom and righteousness together. I pray that you help us to make advancement in these things today, that you would give us your perspective and your priorities and help us to be more faithful to you, more joyful in you, and more satisfied in you day to day. Amen.